You're listening to Jaipur Bites. I'm your host, Lakshtata. What you're about to listen to is a live session from day three of Jaipur Lit Fest 2023. The Big Bang of Numbers. Manil Suri, Manil Suri in conversation with Marcus Du Satoy. As you might have guessed, we're talking origin stories, and so thus spake algebra seemed a good opening. Uh, I must apologize first of all about the quality of my voice. Um, I'm suffering a little bit from uh, granuloma on my vocal cords, but I hope that everyone can hear me. Very good. Uh, because I was especially excited to come to Jaipur to talk about Manuel's new book. Uh, I read his novels, which are fantastic adventures, great stories. And when Namita told me, well, he's written a maths book, and I didn't actually realize uh, Manil was a math professor when I read his novels. So I said, I really want to have the chance to meet and talk about his book. So I said, well, we'll organize a session for you to talk about it in front of all you lot. Um, and then I got this attack on my vocal cords and my wife said, you've got to cancel. And I said, I, I can't cancel, but partly I can't let chair left town, but also for selfish reasons that I really wanted to talk to Manil about this wonderful book. And we're going to talk about orange and stories. The uh, thesis in the book is that maths is the origin of the universe, but I thought we'd start with a mini Big Bang. Manil, I wonder whether you could kick off by telling us a little bit about the origin story of the book itself. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think the book uh, started up as a project that I thought, okay, it'll take me a few months to write this thing since I've uh, met so many artists and writers and so on, which mathematicians often don't. So I'll do something like that that will uh, you know, be a nice public outreach type good deed. And uh, that was in 2008. And so I've been struggling for several years, having written this book not once, but three times over. Uh, and I'm glad that the third time is finally in front of you. Uh, but it's, it's a hard uh, kind of common ground where people who read fiction might not really want to read about mathematics. And people who read about mathematics might want a certain type of book. That's the kind of struggle that publishers often face. But it's wonderful to have a place like this, the JLF, where you know, you're all open-minded enough to come to a mathematics talk uh, rather than running screaming from it. So. <laughs> I was very struck by your choice of storytelling because uh, it, I think most maths books use uh, the kind of universe around us and nature as their entry. So, and then they reveal the maths behind the flowers, their Fibonacci numbers. But you chose a very brave, I think, direction is to kind of reverse that. You said, no, I'm gonna start with the mathematics and show why nature comes out of the maths. Uh, that was a very brave decision. Oh, thank you. Uh, and also a foolish one, perhaps. You know, it took me <laughs> 10 years to, to do it. Uh, but I think it is interesting to look at it uh, a slightly inverted way. Uh, and you know, you often hear about religion being the, the kind of discipline or whatever you want to call it where people go to for answers about our own existence. 
you have this concept of creating everything out of nothing, creatio ex nihilo, uh, you know, Genesis or Brahma blowing out uh, the universe. Uh, and you also have physics where, again, maybe it's not quite nothing, it's a singularity or something like that, and that uh, creates the Big Bang and everything emerges from that. So physics and religion are places where people go to for answers about our own existence. What about mathematics? And so I wanted to really uh, give people the idea that mathematics too informs us. It has an emotional impact in some sense. And so it was necessary from that point of view to make it the center of the story and uh, posit that what really drives uh, the universe, the intelligence behind the universe is actually mathematics. And then nature uh, does a so-so job of actually uh, interpreting it and creating things around us. Uh, where did that kind of love of mathematics begin? Because I think it, you've dedicated the book to a teacher, which was the kind of big bang, in a sense, yes. for your right to fall in love with mathematics. Yeah, this is... Uh, my professor at, uh, I was at the Institute of Science in Mumbai, Bombay back then, uh, and this was in the 1970s, and I was a physics major, and we were doing abstract algebra and number theory and the creation of numbers, and this professor, uh, Huzur Bazar, he gave us Kronecker's famous uh, saying that God gave us the integers, the whole numbers, and the rest all is the work of human beings, of man. Uh, and then he said, well, actually, I can do better than that. I, can, I don't need God. I can actually create all the numbers as well, out of nothing. And he proceeded to demonstrate this for us. And uh, we are actually going to do that using uh, something I'll get to in a minute. Uh, but, you know, that was such an amazing experience. It was really like suddenly all the numbers were just uh, flowing out of the blackboard, flowing out of Dr. Huzur Bazar and enveloping all of us. And that's where I said, okay, this is what I want to do. This is what I changed, yeah. And that's really where the book begins, is this wonderful story of starting with nothing. Yes. And out of nothing, one seems to get everything else. Uh, so perhaps you could tell us a little bit about this initial Big Bang that starts the story off. Yes, exactly. So let's, let's uh, get to that. And here is the amazing, uh, I don't know if it was a coincidence or it's just such an idea that's so irresistible, but uh, when, uh, when we were put uh, in contact with each other, Marcus said that that's exactly how his new play starts, called The Axiom of Choice. Uh, and I've been watching it and it's amazing. And uh, in my book, of course, uh, I have to use diagrams and so on, but uh, you actually use actors. So we are gonna actually enact it out for you, and show how uh, everything can come out of nothing, how this Big Bang works. Uh, so uh, to, to do that, I'm just gonna set it up. Uh, the one technical term that we need uh, is what is a set. Uh, a set, some, some of you might have heard already, a set is a collection of objects. Uh, and a good way of representing it in mathematics is uh, you usually have curly brackets, so I'm gonna, you know, when I have two hands like this, uh, those are gonna be the curly brackets that enclose certain objects. So for example, uh, that, that would be the set of one person, that's me. Uh, and uh, you know, that would be the set of all the people in, the, in this audience. You know, I, we'd have to put everyone between them. So think of that. Now, um, 
you could have a set that has no objects in it. Uh, for example, uh, yeah. So in that case, you know, your brackets get together and you basically have a namaste. <laughs> so think of this as two brackets stuck, stuck together and there's nothing in it, okay? There's, it's an empty set. Uh, so, yeah, so what we're gonna do is, what he did was he took the empty set and put it over there as our first number. We are equating emptiness, this empty set, with the number zero. So zero is just, you know, shunya. Shunya came out of the void, and that's what we are doing as well. That's the empty set. And, and I should just say, you know, you might want to move back because we've never actually tried this. This big bang might obliterate us all. So be careful, okay? So after we have the empty set, uh, you're going to now open up your hands and create another uh, set, and I'm going to do it for him. So notice what I did. I took that empty set and put it in the center of this new set that Marcus is creating. Now look at this set. This no longer is the same as your empty set. Your empty set was like this. This set has something in it. It has the empty set in it. So it's something new, it's something different. And that's what we'll call the number one. That's the number one. Now he's gonna put this next to the empty set and put it over here. So empty set is still sitting there, number one is still sitting there, and now he's gonna create another number. So that's zero, that's one. And now he's gonna, yeah, he's gonna create a number that includes both of them. So that's zero, one, and that's his number two. <laughs> now we have a question for you. How far should it go? 20, 30, 40? Come on, you can do it. 50. <laughs> so, so yes, so, he's, so while he's doing it, you know, we'll get along with the rest of the talk. He'll be doing this the whole talk. <laughs> okay, so you get the idea, right? So once you have this, the numbers just start repeating and there's this big bang and that's where you get all the numbers. So that's creation from the mathematical point of view. And for me, um, this play I wrote, which was during uh, my kind of lockdown activity, um, it felt really important. And I think it's something that often gets missed is Mathematics can be so abstract, but somehow to use embodiment, to use the body, is again, I think, a kind of missed trick when it comes to mathematics. That uh, if people feel the mathematics and embody it, suddenly they get it more. I think that's one of the things we, we kind of miss in mathematical education. Yeah, and you know, each time I teach this, you're going to have to come and do your <laughs> trick. So, um, but, but yeah, it just makes such a difference. You know, mathematics is. Uh, it's about, people have all sorts of misconceptions too, uh, like, you know, in school you often do a lot of calculations and drill, and so people start equating mathematics with that, and um, if you're not good at that, then you hate mathematics, and it's not for you. Uh, and then, of course, as you said, uh, there are all these abstract ideas, which is really what mathematics is about, and those can be presented in a way that is hard for people to really relate to stuff that they know about. 
Now, as you demonstrated, as we demonstrated, a very abstract idea, which is probably taught only to mathematics majors, can be enacted out, and there are nice ways of doing it so that you, people need some sort of anchor, I feel. And that's what you know, pushes that forward. And once you have that anchor, then you can go ahead. Well, I think there's something rather special as well about the idea that you can start to make everything like numbers from nothing. And uh, I mean, of course, nothing, the idea of zero, was quite a late discovery in mathematics yes. discovered here in India. And of course, in Europe, they were very frightened of it and didn't want to admit it as a number. But I think in Indian philosophy, zero was always, sunyata was always meant to be the possibility of something. Have you found that Indian audiences are more receptive to this idea of zero being the beginning of everything? Well, I, I think so because uh, you know there's this uh, strain in terms of Hinduism where uh, you have a similar kind of uh, idea that everything arises from the void. Uh, shunya, the whole concept, is something that you know is often attributed. This openness to the void is often attributed to the discovery of zero. Uh, where, as you pointed out, the Greeks, for example, felt that the void was something evil, that nothing was actually a sign of the devil, perhaps. And so that set back uh, Greek mathematics, uh, Western mathematics for several hundred years. And the, and the interesting thing is that with zero, it's not just, uh, not just India, but also other uh, non-European civilizations uh, like the uh, Mayans and the Babylonians and uh, perhaps even the Chinese and the Arabs and so on that actually brought zero together. So one of the interesting things I do in my class about, I teach this class on the history of mathematics, I tell the students, uh, supposing zero had been copyrighted and supposing each time anyone used zero, you had to pay royalties. How would you divide the royalties up? And you know, based on the history, you can actually try and figure out. So I always take a vote, and India always comes first. Uh, but then you see all these other um, countries, like Iraq and uh, Mexico and so on, which uh, I think in the narrative of mathematics, sometimes there is less emphasis on these cultures and their contributions to it. Having started with zero and created all the numbers, we would one, two, three, up to infinity and that's I think one of the really exciting chapters in your book is your uh, story of infinity and I, I think for me when I learned about infinity um, at university if I was having to take a few theorems with me onto a desert island I think I would choose some of Cantor's discoveries about infinity perhaps you could share some of the the wonderful insights that mathematicians have had that infinity isn't just one thing but many things yeah, so this was uh, Cantor, George Cantor, and uh, in the book, as you mentioned, I, uh, you know, since I'm a story writer, I had to sneak in a little bit of fiction. So there's an actual short story that I had to kind of get by the editor, and they seem to have let it go. So there's uh, a way of, you know, making Cantor's story into a fictional war between two planets. Uh, but uh, the, the key thing that this mathematician found out was that infinity actually comes in different sizes. And there's not just one infinity, there can be a larger infinity. And I, I think a good way of thinking about it is as follows. And we can kind of see why that happens. So suppose 
uh, you think of uh, this instant in time right now and let's say one minute later. Uh, and then I say, okay, how many instants of time are there between this instant of time and one minute later? And you would say, well, there's an infinite number of them, right? You can divide it up and you can say, okay, uh, each, each little, think of it as a little line, each little point on it is an instant of time. But then I will ask you the question, can you number these instants of time as the first instant, the second instant, the third instant, the fourth instant, and so on? And it turns out you cannot. And that's what Cantor found. If you try to number them, you run out of numbers, strangely enough. Even though you have an infinite number of numbers, the number of instants in time that we all live between any two instants is actually a higher infinity than you can number with our with the numbers that we created in our experiment. So that's one of the most fascinating things. I think that kind of tells us that, you know, each time you think you've got it, you've reached the uh, end of knowledge, uh, there's always more questions waiting for you. There's higher infinities. And that's kind of reassuring. That means that we'll never actually run out of questions, that we'll be able to have fun with mathematics forever, perhaps. You gave a kind of physical example there using time. But I think some physicists would say, actually, we believe that time might be quantized, that actually it comes in little units, just like we think space mm -hmm. comes in little units and matter. So it's a real challenge here. Your book, in some ways, is trying to move from the abstract world of mathematics, where we definitely have an idea of infinity, many infinities, infinitely many infinities, to a physical universe. Now, what's your feeling of whether infinity actually exists physically? What's your, is, is, there some, is the universe infinite, or could it be wrapped up and finite? So I think, I think, again, that's more a physics question. And uh, this was one of the hardest things in the book, um, to try and um, tie together what we know in physics and make it compatible with all the mathematical theories that there can be. And uh, in mathematics, uh, I feel that we start with some basic assumptions, like there is something called an empty set, and then we build up mathematics from that. And uh, if you change the assumptions, you get different uh, kinds of mathematics. Physicists, on the other hand, uh, they are driven by observations. So they have a bunch of observations, and then they come up with theories that will explain those observations and maybe extend them. And this is constantly changing. As you get more observations, you keep changing things. Um, and when you get to questions like quantum mechanics and the nature of space and so on, it's like a wild west. There are all these theories, and um, you know, they're not necessarily all compatible with each other. And it's a marketplace of ideas. And I think over time, you know, certain theories, they uh, will emerge as the winners, so to speak. Um, so whether the, whether the universe is infinite or not, uh, I actually briefly consider the possibility that it might not be, that we might not even need all the numbers that we could do uh, with just a finite set of numbers, uh, which computers do, which many, many computer systems will do. They'll just have a finite set of numbers. So you could do that, but you know, I think the spirit of mathematics is also that once you have a question, uh, our natural curiosity uh, tells us, forces us, drives us to answer those questions. So uh, the kind of uh, 
model that I have, and, and maybe we are getting to this really hard question, is uh, how do you connect the mathematics with physical reality? Yeah, because this, I mean, your book very much resonated with a book that I wrote a few years ago called, um, in the US it was called The Great Unknown, in the UK it was called What We Cannot Know. And, you know, I came to this realization, there's so much mathematics underlying the universe then maybe, as you say, maybe mathematics is, is the creator that we're looking for. In some sense, you know, you want something outside of time because if, if it's in time, then it needs itself a creator. But mathematics is kind of timeless. And therefore, you know, people often say, oh, God must be a mathematician. I kind of reverse that in the book and said, I think mathematics is the God that we're looking for. Right. But my real challenge was, well, how do you go from this abstract world of mathematics to physicalizing the maths. I mean, I, I do think our universe is kind of physicalized piece of mathematics. And there could be many universes because you can physicalize things in different ways. Um, there are different geometries as you explain so beautifully in the book. Um, how do you overcome this, this leap from the abstract, almost Platonistic idea to then actually seeing a shadow of it or physicalizing it with, with matter itself? Yes, so um, I, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I think both of us probably went through that same question. How do we proceed? And you know, this was massive writer's block for me. Like, what do you do after you've created all this mathematics? How do you actually make physical stuff out of it? And um, the title of the book is How to Build the Universe. And I sort of went back and thought, what does it mean to build something? You know, if you look at ancient uh, builders like uh, like uh, Akbar, for example, or Jahangir, and so on. They built great, magnificent palaces, whatever. They didn't actually do the building themselves. They hired a contractor. They hired people to do it for them. So I'd like to think of it in the same way, that mathematics is this central force, but then there has to be a contractor, uh, some, some other agency or entity that is gonna translate the mathematics into physical reality. You, there's no way around it. And I'm glad you say the same thing. And so you have to have this entity, and I call that nature. Now, what nature is depends on you. Some people might say, hey, nature is God. Some people might say nature is physics. And so, or some people might believe both of them. We don't have to be, you know, uh, just have one. So people might have some, some non-binary ideas about that. Uh, but nature is what you're going to actually, what's actually going to translate these things into reality. And that's where algebra comes in. You know, we saw in the beginning, uh, algebra is really a way of us, if you're creating the universe, to tell nature what our instructions are. And uh, the problem is nature might have ideas of her own. You know, she might say, okay, I like randomness in this, or I like to put my own stamp on this. So that's why you never see exact things represented in our world. Here's an example. Uh, you never see an actual triangle. You never see a perfect circle. These are things that we think about, we can mathematically write down equations for, but we can't actually construct them just because we are always coming down to that quantum kind of atoms or whatever you're gonna end up with, so everything is discrete. So you can't actually have a perfect triangle in this universe. I think one of the other beautiful qualities of your book is the personification you give to ideas and you can really feel the, the novelist beginning to, to run through the book um, because 
you know, the numbers have personalities. I mean, interestingly, it was always said of Ramanujan that he always knew each number as his own personal friend. And I kind of feel the same with you. And you talk about a student uh, that you have who's synesthetic and really feels like numbers have a sort of sensual quality to them. My, my wife is also synesthetic, and for her, numbers have colors attached to them. And uh, I was very struck by that decision to, to give your numbers characters. I mean, there's a wonderful moment when uh, the complex numbers, they get very... <laughs> That several complexes break down and have to be assisted out. I mean, uh, this decision to to give the the numbers characters. Where did that come from? So uh, that actually came from one of the three versions of the book that I wrote, where uh, one of the versions was a novel called The Godfather of Numbers, and you had the numbers being the characters, and the Godfather of Numbers was this mysterious entity that you only learnt about at the end was infinity. So that's the, that, that was what was actually controlling all the numbers. But then when it came to this nonfiction version, I realized with the experience of the student that uh, people experience mathematics and numbers and such things in many different ways. And uh, having the numbers in there helped me show how mathematics is a game. Uh, so the numbers actually, once they're constructed, they need to keep themselves occupied. They need to play games. And what are the most obvious games? Well, addition and subtraction and multiplication. When you add two whole numbers together, you always just because you had to, you know, make the characters and then show them how, show the audience how these are gonna lead to these ideas. So uh, a little bit of that though is very nice because it actually interests people. Uh, too much can be a little more difficult. You explain in the book quite intriguingly that all the books that we're talking about here at JLF, all the books that have ever been written, actually mathematics has got there first. That right. inside the decimal expansion of various numbers like pi and other numbers, that we can find war and peace, we can find the big uh, bang of numbers. Right. Could you give us a little idea? How did maths get there first? Yeah, so this is an interesting property of certain, of most irrational numbers. You know, you know pi goes on forever. The decimal expansion never you know, it doesn't settle down into a repeating pattern. Uh, and what, what mathematicians have found is that uh, such numbers, which is most numbers actually, uh, if you look at their decimal expansion, all possible combinations of numbers juxtaposed next to each other occur in them. Let me elaborate what I mean. You know, as a child, I used to play a game where A was equal to one, B was equal to 2, C was equal to 3, and so on. Did anyone else play such games where you turned uh, alphabets into code? So cab, C-A-B, was uh, 3, 1, 2. So cab was 3, 1, 2. Now, uh, if you took war and peace, you could convert the whole text. I don't know how many thousand pages it is. But you could convert the whole thing into one long uh, set of numbers, you know, one long string of numbers. And it would be a whole number. Let's say it was 20 trillion trillion whatever. So that would be a whole number. Now, if you look at pi and all these other numbers, every possible whole number, every possible string is always in it. And so war and peace will be inside that. You just don't know where it is, but if you search for it far enough, you will find it. Uh, and so every book that is ever going to be written 
And even my book is in there. It's in Pi. You know, they wrote it first. Uh, and I wish I could have found it. It would have saved me 10 years of my life if I could have just found that and translated that. Uh, thank you. <laughs> but there's a little bit of a problem with this, isn't there? Yes, yes. Which is there are also rather bad versions of your book in there. Yes, yes. All sorts of mistakes, all sorts of, you know, idiotic things. And uh, this actually goes back to a story by Borges, uh, who, who wrote this uh, story, short story, called The Library of Babel. And again, there, there are all these books in this library, and they have all possible combinations of a certain number of letters. But the problem is nobody knows where the books are, and which are the real books, and which are the confederate books. The it's interesting, because this uh, short story was actually the inspiration for the first play that I wrote. Oh, uh, yeah, wow, so, that's great. Uh, because in, in that short story, he also explores kind of the nature of the shape of the universe mm -hmm. and uses narrative. You know, he didn't have a mathematical language, but the shape of the universe, he, the library that it creates is a four-dimensional torus, but he uses the language of literature. Right. And I love that story because, you know, in some sense, you think the library contains everything, but because it contains everything, it contains nothing. Yeah. And that is what the role of the human is. We make choices. Uh, the choices of the books, like War and Peace, your book. But I think that's something that people don't understand about mathematics. The mathematics, we also make choices about the theorems that we think are interesting, the theorems that move us, that it is an emotional response that we have, that there's jeopardy and climax and resolution. And for me, that's one of the things I think which connects uh, mathematical proof with the idea of writing story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that this is, again, uh, such an unexplored idea, I feel. You know, literature and mathematics, uh, people often feel that you have to be a maths person, a numbers person, or a word person. And this, and let me tell you, that's, that's just not true. Uh, you can enjoy anything you want. Mathematicians go for literature, and all, all the people who are more, you know, feel that I'm just a literary person, go for some mathematics. You will find that there are things that'll intrigue you, as long as there's some interest there, and as long as you go at your own pace. You know, there's no exam, there's no final exam. So you're beyond that, you've left that behind. I think that is one of the challenges that, in mathematics, you very often are building a pyramid. And you can see that in your book, because you start from nothing and gradually you build more and more. But I think one of the tragedies in our education system is often you have a bad teacher, and that layer of the pyramid kind of is so unstable, you can't build anything else on top of that. And that is one of the challenges. You do have to go slowly, maybe need to go back, make it firm before you build the next layer. Right, yeah. It's always an issue of, you know, being a mathematician is much easier, I feel, than being a, ma a good mathematics teacher. So it's, it's really a, a, a difficult subject often to get across in a way that people understand it, that no one is left behind, and that people are actually engaged and see how it actually affects our day-to-day -day lives. There's another important character in your book, which I think we shouldn't leave out, which is the Pope. Yes, the Pope. Uh, <laughs> how so, does the Pope get into this book? So uh, I wrote this article uh, called How to Fall in Love with Math in the New York Times several years ago. And um, it was something that really did well and it started moving up the uh, most emailed list for the day. It was number one for that day. And by the end of the week, uh, it became uh, you know, fourth most emailed article for the week. And then it was number three, and then it was number two. 
And then just as I was about to get into the first part, the Pope started making all these controversial statements about abortion and homosexuality and this and that. And he just came running from behind and leaped over me and was in number one. And so in some sense, you know, I've always, you know, it's not a grudge that I have against him or anything. Um, but he actually became a character in my book to really show the uh, idea of religion, like what religion uh, uh, has to say about mathematics. So it, he became a character in my book. And I promised to send a copy to him, which I did. I sent him a copy, I have photographs to prove it, and I got a response from him. Uh, not from him personally, but from someone in his organization. And I was quite nervous when I opened it because I thought, hey, this might be from the lawyer saying, how dare you do this? Uh, but all it said was that the Pope has received it, he's thinking of me, and he blesses the book. So, wonderful. So. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jepper Bites. I'm your host, Lakshdatta. This podcast is produced by Launchora in association with Teamwork Arts. Please follow or subscribe to this show wherever you're listening to this to be notified about new episodes.